Hello, everyone. Since this is either a highlight, a standalone book, or the first episode in a series, I'm jumping in to remind you what the rules are for this podcast. First rule is no real people stories. That means that any details from our own lives are merely anecdotal. We do not read books about real people, and we are not reading historical fiction. The second rule is that we are basing our analyses off of how the author treats characters and what they put them through. We are not judging the accuracy of the trauma, the accuracy of any actual conditions that may be portrayed, nor the authenticity of a character's reaction to that trauma or that particular condition. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The hosts are not trained professionals, and their opinions come solely from personal experience. In this episode, we discuss fictional depictions of trauma and violence that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please take care of yourselves. Specific content warnings for each episode can be found in the show notes. Events in the media are discussed in approximate order of escalation. This episode contains spoilers. Nicole. And I'm Robin. And this time on Books That Burn, we have a guest. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Saint. Um, I am an author of romantic fantasy fiction and gothic fiction. And I currently live in Boston with my partner and our spoiled Persian cat. And I'm super excited to be here today. Yeah. Uh, and you're, uh, I was gonna say you're also an author uh of a dowry of blood which uh was a fun yeah it's it's great thank uh, you so much i can see why you're doing yeah. this book with us <laughs> <laughs> yep yes absolutely <laughs> uh and this book is gideon the ninth by tamson weir all right for our factions we have Harohar Kananajisimus, Gideon Nav, and a bunch of other people. It's <laughs> it's so many. So many. Um, there are yep, there are nine houses, two reps from each house, three and, from the fifth uh, or from the third. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Say, at least yeah, three from the third. Yeah, there's at least two people for each house, so it is. A big caster, everybody has very interesting names. Uh, one of the most relevant to our current discussion, other than Harahark and Gideon, will be Dulcina Septimus. Um, all right. For our first topic, we have toxic relationship, uh, specifically between Harrow and Gideon. And boy, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Saint, how, when you were reading this book, what stood out to you in how Harrow and Gideon treat each other? It was so incredibly compelling to me. Um, and I had heard a lot of scuttle about the dynamic between Harrow and Gideon. 
Um, and I was like, okay, we'll see. <laughs> but it really was incredibly compelling and fraught and full of angst and desire and all kinds of repressed emotions. Um, and they just, when they're in the same room together, they just like simmer with this back and forth. They have this weird rapport that's just very, very tense. Um, but they also have some very like wrenchingly intimate moments as well. And I thought that was just really well executed. But that's not to say that their relationship is in any way healthy or normative <laughs> at all. <laughs> and also part of the toxicity is how much you said when they're whenever they're in the same room, they have this dynamic. But there's a lot of time where they are not in the same room. It's true. But and they're still upset Harrow's, at each other. <laughs> yeah, still upset at each other. Yeah. And, and it's this interesting combination where, like, Gideon has all these, like, tense and complicated, like, feelings about Harrow and thinks about Harrow a lot. But when she asks Harrow about things that would... um uh elicit a response about what Harrow was thinking about Gideon, the answer is, oh, I was not thinking about you. I don't I don't care enough about you to think about you. And we don't know how much of that is lying. Right. But it is at least what we're told and whether or not it's true that Harrow would that Harrow would have that as the response. Um, plays very interestingly into the relationship. And also, like, the their dynamic changes in a way that feels very natural throughout the book. Like, they have very good reasons to be very bad at communicating and have all this toxicity. And towards the end, the relationship is not healthier but they had communicated more yes. about things that had happened when they were kids, when they were too young to be responsible, but they felt responsible anyway, or felt that the other one was responsible and hated them for it. Something I, I really like that I think is done very well Um is that there's no th this can frustrate me sometimes in books when there's a moment where like the world changes and I see them differently and then the character just is different now and that doesn't happen here um none none of this like you know like it it does feel kind of kind of natural that evolution but you also see those moments where like something happened and Gideon is like I could just yell okay all right we're going to we're going to be better than this and like but there's an active intentional decision there but it's not a switch that flips you can see kind of Gideon's like automatic like this is how I respond in this situation and then you can kind of see her think like no actually that's not going to help <laughs> um, and then and then it gets more and more automatic to be better to each other a little bit as as the book goes on which I appreciate that evolution and like we'll talk about this when we start talking about um in our our final topic we'll have like mm -hmm. uh necromancy and cannibalism and things but i the the their relationship gets better the more 
Harrow can bring herself to actually use Gideon because Gideon exists emotionally and then also like physically is in this place at all to be used by Harrow. Like there's a bit where Gideon is like, you know, look, my entire point is for you to use me. If you're not doing that, then there's no there's no reason for me to be here. Like it's it's worse for her to be in this space but not get used because then she's not just it's not if she's being used, she is being exploited, but if she's not being used, she is nothing. And for her that's worse. Let's let's talk a little bit about what actually happens. Not not plot spoiler things, but just what is their reaction to each other? generally speaking um so the the point of view we have is gideon so we don't we don't know as much of the motivations behind harrow's actions but we know kind of what they are and we know that gideon sees harrow try to control them kind of a lot physically moving looking for stuff harrow tried to you know, didn't like that, uh, thought that there might have been a, a possibility that they brought a weapon they're more comfortable with than the one they were told to bring, which is true. But then Gideon went through their stuff to try and find it. But we know that that kind of thing Her has happened before, even if it hadn't told us prior in the text, because Gideon knows that Harrow is going to do that <laughs> and took pretty serious precautions to keep them from finding things that they didn't want them to find. So there's this there's kind of a, a history that we, we get a little bit of like why things happened later. We don't really get a, a real history of everything that has happened between them, but you can kind of, it it lays out very, very clearly that, you know, Harrow coming in and trying to grab or take or rearrange or control Gideon and Gideon's things is already a reoccurring pattern and and Gideon having subversive ways to to get around that is also a a very ingrained pattern in the two of them and also their ability to mess with each other's stuff is asymmetrical because gideon can't put up bone wards right on things (laughs) like gideon thinks a lot about how or thinks more than once about how nice it would be to uh go into harrow's closet and sew all of their shirt sleeves shut and i'm like wow that is a crafty prank (laughs) <laughs> uh that i'm like okay that's interesting um it's very specific but like you know very minor spoiler gideon doesn't get to do that because harrow has her stuff warded and by the time she doesn't have her stuff warded gideon no longer wants to do that or or is no um, longer considering giving into the impulse at least yes yeah um yeah like it Harrow doesn't want to I don't I got the the vibe that Harrow didn't want like needing to use someone implied that she wasn't strong enough to do it herself. Mm-hmm. And that is literally true, but she has the mental baggage of and that's bad I should be able to do all of it myself. Like she early on she you know gideon finds her 
repeatedly having uh, drained herself and, you know, is huddled in like a shell, a protective shell of bone. And she's kind of like, you know, no, 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 leave me down here. I can totally recover and keep doing the extremely draining thing mentally and physically that I'm doing over and over. Just leave me alone in my bone shell. It'll <laughs> be me fine. Alone. And Gideon is like, <laughs> leave no. me alone to die. <laughs> well, no, it's more, I don't know. It's that, That's mean, not the, what's physically happening, but that's the type of dramatic that response that happen. Gideon gets. <laughs> yeah, you know, and th- there's, there's, because of the way uh, using necromancy takes a toll on the wielder like there's a lot of times where harrow like has blood pouring down her face from what she just did and it's like no i can fight you know just keep going um it like it's very like monty python night kind of a feeling get it i'll get you Uh, is there any saint is there anything else that you any other thoughts you had on this this particular dynamic i just think i find it interesting how like we're talking about how harrow wants to be so incredibly self-reliant and like to avoid spoilers like carries an amazing amount of weight on her shoulders that she has decided is her responsibility um Mm -hmm. and just like a tremendous amount of a sense of obligation. Um, And I just find that really interesting, especially in comparison to Gideon, who doesn't necessarily have that sense of duty or obligation, but grows over the course of the book to have a sense of obligation to like Harrow specifically, Um, Mm -hmm. not even to the ninth or to the, the you know shadow cult that they both belong to but to harrow um and again it's not the most functional thing in the world it's fairly dysfunctional and it has some really extreme ramifications but it is i think moving in a direction that's more towards them being um a unified pair like a unit that works together in tandem all right go ahead and hit stop to our next topic uh which is uh suicide we have a helpline number in the show notes if you need that um but we're gonna talk about this topic i mean a lot in this section and then possibly even a little bit in the in the next one Mm -hmm. we'll see um because at this point also this will get into end of book spoilers and major mid-book spoilers. So, if you don't want all of that spoiled, please feel free to head straight to the wrap-up. But, for everyone who's staying... Okay, so, we've got some backstory, we've got uh, people who don't necessarily feel like they want to be alive, and they're doing a bunch of magic before that happens, and then also um, at least one like major suicide during the book um and you know because we have a whole bunch of people with swords whose purpose is to give their lives to protect other people (laughs) 
we have a lot of, well, that technically wasn't suicide, but they knew that they were not going to make it out of that fight. Right. Um, so let's so, start with the parents and Cavalier when Harrow was very young. Let's talk about that. So this is a, we, we, we should preface with, there are circumstances that are spoilers around Harrow's birth. And Harrow discovered what those were and also, or no, Harrow was told what they were, but then Harrow decided to go into the, the locked tomb that no one is supposed to enter. And when she came back out alive, her parents' reaction was, well, time to die. Yeah, it's, uh, you shouldn't, I got kind of like a, you shouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. And because you could, the apocalypse is here, kind of a, a thing. Exactly. And this sense that she's committed some sort of unspeakable act, like this mega sin by doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so her, it's her parents and then also their cavalier um, who killed themselves. And the plan was for Harrow to also kill herself. But she says that after watching them, like, she couldn't, she didn't want to. And then when one of the things at the root of the toxic relationship we discussed earlier is that Gideon then comes into the room and sees Harrow alive and the adults dead. Mm -hmm. And Harrow is deeply upset that Gideon saw that. And Gideon thinks of it kind of as her fault. Yeah. Gideon Um, thinks that Harrow, like, Gideon thinks that Harrow did something, but that it is Gideon's fault. Right. Which is just like more of their entanglement that stretches back like into their childhood. Because I think that they're like 10 and 11 at this point in time. They're quite young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they already have this extremely unhealthy dynamic. Absolutely. Um, so like with suicide and self-sacrifice as this theme throughout the book. Um, they're... They're on this planet to work towards this goal of being a Lyktor. And they, other than that, Lyktors are extremely powerful. They don't actually seem to totally know what that is. Mm -hmm. And they definitely don't know how you achieve it. Right. And how you achieve it is one person, the Cavalier, dies and the other person (laughs) absorbs them. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's such a kind way of saying that that you have to do that in order yeah. for it to work yeah at minimum okay yeah i i feel like the book spent a book describing it so much better than i'm going to be able to <laughs> um but mechanically that is what's happening and what you need to know for this discussion of it mm-hmm. um so basically the dynamic in the book ends up being that you have like all these people who start finding out that they either have to die or they have to 
watch someone they care about and are very emotionally Mm -hmm. and like in one case it's a married couple yeah they're very tied to um they'll have to die and then also be in each other's heads forever which means that they won't they'll be dead and the survivor won't get to move on and depending on which pair that either sounds totally fine to them is a latch last ditch resort that they hope they don't actually have to do or it's a thing they do not want or they're one of the unlucky groups that get killed before this revelation happens because there's also a murderer on the loose uh saint how what was your reaction understanding as the the plot for this particular thing unfolded it was kind of a slow burn. Um, it was. It was a slow burn. And I'm very um I'm very slow when it comes to both mysteries and um complex science fiction fantasy with a lot of names. So I did not deduce anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I had to have it explained to me and I was surprised. Um I was just like very much <laughs> like, wow, that's really that's really heavy. Like that's really dark. Um, I think was my immediate reaction. I did find it like it it seems like this essential puzzle piece that slots into place when you figure it out and you're like, oh, of course, like, of course it would have to be this way. Um, uh, which is, I think, the the genius of the author in this, in that regard. But it is like a, a very heavy revelation. I kind of like took a step back from the book and I was like, whoa. Yeah. <clears throat> no, the, fir- I think the-, the first time that I read this, I definitely got to the end and I was like, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the ending is a, is a sucker punch for sure. Yes. Yeah. I also really enjoyed how, how much of a puzzle it was for the characters. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely, because it, it, the whole book is building up to this moment, and it's very, it's very, it's very clear for the characters and for the readers on a second or, or second uh, read through to kind of see like where each of the the tests that they were given were were going. Mm-hmm. And I just I thought it was very well built up, very well done. Oh, it was absolutely very well executed for sure. And it ensures that the stakes rising, like both emotionally, yeah. both internal and external stakes just keep getting ratcheted up further and further as the book goes on, which is part of the genius of it. Also, like, so, so there's like several different ways to like ramp up the stakes in a situation like this. And they, I appreciate it that. What you have to do to become a Lyktor didn't get more complicated or necessarily more traumatic just because there's also someone trying to murder people. Yeah. Like, becoming a Lyktor was already this very intense process that's going to require either a murder or a suicide in order to happen. Um... And that those stakes are not any, they, 
There's no point in which if they had solved the puzzles faster, that wouldn't have been the end game. Right. They would just have found out sooner that that was the end game. I also love how much the puzzles are just training for what happens after the murder. Uh, And that one of the people is like, oh, yeah, I didn't need the instruction manual you all got at the end. I just did all the puzzles and now I know how to do the thing. (laughs) Um, I... The second time around, I was able to uh, enjoy that character's uh, rather smug. Right. Um, right. Oh, icon behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Our final topic is cannibalism. This will have heavy overlaps with self-harm and murder and probably a little bit more of a discussion of suicide. We'll see. So just yeah. letting you know, um, if you skip the last section, you'll probably also want to skip this one. See you in the wrap-up. It's totally cool. Okay. For everyone who's staying, um, there's a lot. Okay, so it's necromancy. Um, and occasionally... Rather frequently. Occasionally is just whether we get it specifically described or not. Uh, This will involve ingesting blood or bone or, like, other things that aren't necessarily described. Um, (laughs) I, in terms of, There's no close-up on the liver. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Like, I, I did a, like, you know, I'm someone who has difficulty with depictions of, like, very like specific kinds of gory things. Like I just I don't I don't do very well with descriptions of vomit. I really appreciated that this book. No, unless I completely missed one. Like it's got so many mentions of all this gory stuff, but it restricts the explicit description to like how the bones are in the you know necromantic bone mech thing that's happening like um it Mm. it's it's like you know you know the gore is still graphic but it's like the breadth of it given how much is happening the breadth of the kind of descriptions that were happening felt uh, narrower than the bounds that they could have explored if that Mm -hmm. makes sense uh and i I appreciated that. Um, so it's like, oh, they are seeing some very messed up stuff and we don't have to see all of it. Uh, like it, it took until the second read through when I was like, oh, no, this is cannibalism. Oh, OK. All right. I don't know how I missed that. Um, so. Saint, did you have any uh, particular thoughts about how this was shown? Um, I agree with you in that it wasn't as graphic as it could have been. But it was still, like, uh, visceral. Like, it's still... Maybe upsetting is is the wrong word, because that's very subjective. But it's still... 
a very like visceral in the body description um, with everything from the byproducts of, you know, a, a sword fight to using blood and bones and viscera in necromancy. Um, it's just like this very embodied sort of narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Nicole, did you have specific thoughts about this? Um, I was weirdly not surprised by it. Um, there wasn't a lot of like direct foreshadowing, but -hmm. there was a lot of discussion over pieces there was a lot of like the houses bouncing off each other and being angry and frustrated because some people thought that you know controlling another person's body was fine and other people thought that was really gross and over the over the over the line Mm -hmm. there was you know some of the houses were like you know using magic to control a corpse is a problem whereas that's everything the ninth does you know there was a there was Mm -hmm. a lot of it was framed as a culture clash um, but yeah. then you get to the end where it turns out it's cannibalism is the answer and it was like oh of course it is because that's the debate they've been having the entire time just not by that name everything right. they're talking about can kind of culminate in that in a way that it really can't in very in almost anything else specifically so cannibalism to then control the corpse and get and use it for things you know. Right, right. So you mean when you mean you weren't surprised, you mean you weren't by the end surprised that Lycterhood hinges on cannibalism. I, I mean that when happen. we got to the cannibalism part, I go, ah, mystery solved. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course it's you. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. But but I thought it was yeah. really it was really well set up. Especially because, you know, if you were somebody who reading it that would be like stressful or too much for you you would have jumped off of this book way before now oh yeah because there are so many discussions over all of all of those things there's there's discussions about controlling corpses there's discussions about controlling another living person and moving them around there's discussions about uh, consuming and using your own blood and your own flesh versus somebody else's. Like, all of those things, you know, by the, by the time you get to the part where we're actually talking about eating the other person, like, the characters have all kind of taken a stance on it already, and as a reader you have an opportunity to as well. And I, I think that, that that just was done really well. But it's done in a way where it's like, you don't start, you know, you're not halfway through the book thinking, this is this is what this is about. <laughs> you know, you, you actually get to the end before it's revealed. But from a, like, a decision standpoint on, for the characters, what they're going to do eventually. And then for the reader, if they're going to continue, you kind of have those pieces to make that decision before you get there. Oh, yeah. And, like, you know, there there's a character where... Um, his, his cavalier is like, well, of course you'd be a like, of course you would, you would do this to me. I'm not surprised. And he's like, no, I was not considering it. Remember my extremely firm, firm stance on how this particular part that is essential for Lecterhood is a thing that you should never do. Right. It's like, oh, 
oh, okay, like, that character is an odious, odious character, and there is no need to make him more odious by also <laughs> doing a murder. Right. He's, he, he is terrible without that, uh, which I appreciate. Like, there's no, and then they kicked a dog to just, like, make sure we know that we don't like them. Um. I really liked um, just kind of how all the characters are in this moral pressure cooker, which you have kind of been mm-hmm. talking about. Like, they have this culture clash going on between the houses already, and they have, like, their assumptions about how the other houses work and if what they do is is immoral or unethical. And then they're kind of put into these situations that stretch them beyond their capacity and force them to like work with their cavaliers in ways that might make them uncomfortable in order to solve the puzzles. And then on top of all of that, you realize that people have been playing by the rules and there are no rules really. And that the only (laughs) way to ascend to, you know, necromantic sainthood is to do something unspeakable. But by that point, you're already in it to win it. Like you are in the pressure cooker. You do not have a lot of options. Uh, People are dying. Like, so I thought it was just a really interesting question to pose to these characters to be like, would you even consider doing the unspeakable in order to, you know, take that final step. Um, And some of them were very willing to do that and others were absolutely not willing to do that. And I don't think you could have really predicted necessarily. I mean, like looking back on it, you see the foreshadowing of which characters would have done that. But when you're in the moment, it's, it's very much this feeling of like, who is going to dare to do this. And I I love to, I love also that the, what is considered the unspeakable is different for each yes, person. That was like that, awesome. that dynamic is so interesting to me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like, um, yeah, like, like even the other characters are not necessarily right about what other characters yeah. will or will not do. And that is everything from there's an imposter to, you know, this this one character thinking that if this character would, like I I'd mentioned, like, you know, be odious and emotionally abusive, if he would do that, well, then, of course, he would do this. And it's like, no, like, you can see how you got there. But it is also completely consistent that he mm-hmm. would not. Absolutely. And. I really, really love the descriptions of all, like, the skeletons and the constructs and the non-skeletal constructs and, like, finding out the... You know that they are surrounded by death and the dead. And then towards the end, you find out how super-duper extra they're surrounded by death and the dead in ways that weren't immediately obvious. Yeah. But completely make sense. Um, and I did definitely like that kind of a thing at the end. So I have a question. Have you ever wanted to get into comics, but you just didn't know where to start? Well, 
Welcome to Comics Quest. I'm JD Martin, and every week I sit down with a guest to talk a comic that I think anybody can pick up and start their comics reading journey. We take a look at psychedelic sci-fi, fantastical action, heart-wrenching love stories, and of course, superheroes. So check us out at certainpov.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On to the wrap-up and ratings for Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Weir. Uh... We have a guest for this episode. Would you briefly say hello again in case anyone missed your earlier intro? Hi, everyone. My name is Saint. Uh, I'm an author of romantic fantasy and gothic fiction, and I live in Boston. Yes. Welcome. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. All right. Uh, our first topic on the gratuity rating for the toxic relationship. I. Okay. <laughs> Moderate or severe, I don't feel like I could seriously consider labeling this mild. Um, uh, I or does someone think that it is mild? Which that would be interesting. No, I don't. Th- I, I I don't think mild. I don't think severe though. Only because mm-hmm. the I think that there's. I think that there is less actual contention happening than the characters think there is. I absolutely agree. I would I would say like moderate because this is this is like true um well, I don't want to say that as a spoiler. Um I would, <laughs> <laughs> like they are truly enemies for sure and like there's been a lot of like conspiracy against each other and even some violence uh, growing up and into adulthood. But a lot of that violence is, like, off screen. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, when Mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, you tried to kill me when we were eight. It's like, that's kind of all we get. Um, We do see them fight physically. We do see them argue. We do see them kind of go behind each other's backs. But I agree with the fact that it's, like, so internalized um, that the the toxicity of the relationship is really this, like, two-sided sparring match. and I think that is a little less severe than one person pointedly abusing another person on screen over and over again. Yeah. Right. Which is not what's happening. No, here. it's not what's I, happening. I at also all. I also think that Gideon puts a lot more emphasis on things that she thinks could happen yes. if XYZ. Like a lot of the toxicity that we see on screen is not things that Harrow is doing to Gideon or things that do- Gideon is doing to Harrow. It's just Gideon being mad, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is not actually indicative of the relationship necessarily. It's more just Gideon not having anybody else to be angry at. Or at least that's my opinion. I, I agree it's not mild, but I don't think it's severe because I don't think it's an actually antagonistic thing. I think it's just that they are not healthy. Right. But but it's not it's not like active intentional abuse, for example. Yeah. And mitigating steps happen. So yes. yeah, I, I definitely On both sides. agree about it being moderate. Yeah. All right. Uh for the suicide, um I I think that this is severe because like of a couple like really specific graphic um like depictions mm-hmm. um 
and the consistency of uh suicide and self-sacrifice as a theme throughout i would yeah i would argue that it's severe because of in because of the uh, the sheer amount of it mm-hmm. and how essentially even if individual incidents aren't bad yes that's true <laughs> that's true it kind of is it is the, the plot in general um yeah. all right uh, and then similar reasoning for cannibalism. I think that is. I think if we tried to label it as anything less than severe, it would be because we start getting into arguments about whether a particular instance yep. of using <laughs> human stuff for things technically counts. And <laughs> if that's our argument, uh, I feel like it's severe. Yeah. Oh, we should also just note. Uh, that none of these even the severe ones don't that we should we should really quick clarify why they are severe and not torture porn uh and the reason is that nothing we see on screen is a thing that the reader is supposed to enjoy happening right it's severe but it's stressful not like helpful for the reader to witness like it's not being none of it is being painted as something that we're supposed to like yeah and generally, there's at least, even if the only way that they don't like it is, oh, no, uh, that's a lot of gore. Like, yeah, it, no, but it, none of it is none of it is supposed happy. to be art, for example. Mm-hmm. So I, want, I wanted to clarify yes. that real quick. Yeah. All right. Are these traumas integral, interchangeable or irrelevant? So if it's a- integral, that means that if we if you modify it like the book falls like it doesn't work book falls apart yeah interchangeable would be that you need to have something there but it didn't need to be that thing and then irrelevant is that like if you took it out and didn't replace it like you really wouldn't notice in terms of like the plot and Um, we should note also that take it out and you won't notice means there's no trauma there not that the event didn't happen so we're specifically talking about trauma right 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 um are we talking about so the toxic relationship we'll talk about them each individually okay, yeah. so for the toxic relationship okay it's definitely i don't think there would be any good argument for it being irrelevant could is there anything it could be swapped for that would let this make sense? Well, okay. Or do you think that Harrow or do you think Gideon is is like so having it in her head that they might not have a toxic relationship? She it could have worked if she was just stressed out. I tell me what the toxic relationship is doing for the plot though before we rule out irrelevant. Hmm. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> the toxic relationship creates um like the antagonism between them and their reluctance to team up and their reluctance to share secrets and actually like work together makes it so that we don't know everything that's happening right away. Like we don't know what's going on with Harrow mm. because Harrow doesn't trust Gideon and Harrow is keeping Gideon at uh-huh. an arm's length initially. Um or more than an arm's length, like a skeleton length away. <laughs> um, <laughs> And a couple of bone yeah. knuckles. Gideon away. is kind of left to her own devices as our narrator to try to solve the 
un unwind a lot of different mysteries going on in the plot. So I would say that it is, it's essential in some way because if they weren't toxic and were communicating from the jump, we would have a totally different book. And a lot of the, um, the stakes just like wouldn't exist. So is that it, because the you, trauma is there or is that because Gideon and Harrow just weren't each other's confidant in childhood? Um, I think they need to currently have a relationship that is complicated and con like connected and bad because if it was because you need them to both you need Harrow to be making lots of progress that she isn't ready to talk to Gideon about so that the progress is happening mm. and Gideon is in the dark and I think if they were working together together better it would definitely change the trajectory of the book in a way that would mean maybe Harrow's less effective because there are ways in which she's more effective when she's not. There are arenas in which she is more effective when she's not worrying about how Gideon feels about things. And then later on, she's more effective working with Gideon, but it's more emotionally fraught because now she cares about how it affects Gideon, at least more than she did at the start of the book. Yeah. And okay. I, I, I don't know how to imagine this book without, like, you would have to move so many pieces that I it would not in any meaningful way be the same book or a suspiciously similar substitute uh, Okay, if you took it out. So we are thinking um, interchangeable? The lowest I would go is to interchangeable, but I don't have a good swap for what it would be. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, having it be... Toxic friendship instead of toxic relationship to me isn't a meaningful change in this instance because I consider both to be happening. It, like, it could also just be a difference in hierarchy. Like that could literally just be it. You don't need to know. And then they finally have to break through until yeah. the no, seriously, I need to know. Okay. Yeah. No, you just don't a have point. a right to know because you're not the necromancer. <laughs> literally, like it could just be that. Okay, you've persuaded me on interchangeable. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go with that as well. Okay. Uh, right. Suicide. Uh, I... I think it... There are so many kinds of death already happening in here. Like, many of the kinds of death are covered. Um, I don't know how meaningful of a change it would be to artfully avoid technically having any of them be suicide. Like. Also, like, two or three of the largest plot twists in the book revolve around suicide or ritual sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like, the book is kind of built I, on those temples. Yeah, like, if switching it out for a different kind of death would work, then you wouldn't have needed that death because there's so much other death in the book. Um, so, so I'm thinking integral. I, um, 
I, I think integral too, just because the plot would have changed without um the, the it, plot it matters, the plot would have changed if any if anything were swapped in for mm-hmm. a couple of specific of these suicides. Yeah, like even if they were swapped for murders, it would, it would very be much change different. the emotion. Yeah, totally different. Yes. And the character's yeah. emotional like the whole emotional world and landscape of the characters would change and the sense of who mm-hmm. feels guilty for what and who feels obligated to what duty would change. And that's kind of like the stuff underpinning the entire like interpersonal stakes of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Like the last third of the book would be unrecognizable. Yeah, I agree. So um, I'm going to say integral. I, yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, the cannibalism. Um, I, I I just real quick sidebar. Mm-hmm. Every time the word I see the word cannibalism, the whose line is it anyway? Ten second song plays in my head. <laughs> it does. Don't worry, I'm I'm there with you. Yes. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh. But yeah. The okay. So for this as a topic, uh, I if they're doing. Okay, first of all, you can't have this book without necromancy. Like, you can't. So the question is, can you have this book with necromancy, but without anybody ingesting anything? And I don't think so. Yeah, I'm going to say no. I think the contortions you... Yeah, the contortions you would need to go to to technically avoid it, you you would end up in similar discussions to, like, are are vampires cannibals and it's like yeah (laughs) unless you really specifically design your world so that they're not yeah like (laughs) it feels like a similar group of of arguments um uh yeah so integral um okay so were the traumas treated with care for the toxic relationship I feel like, yeah, yes, either yes or enough for this being treated with care. Um, uh, especially when we were uh, discussing how a lot of the toxic bits that we see are Gideon thinking, like, you know, trying to, like, plan four moves out for what Harrow is going to do. But then never triggering hypothetical move one. And See, so all of that potential stuff like doesn't happen. Um See, I feel I I feel like this is one of those where Harrow's internal monologue makes Oh Gideon's internal monologue. Uh yeah, Gideon's internal it. monologue. Uh, makes it less gratuitous, but also treated with less care. Okay. Because Gideon is just constantly harping on potential problems. That's true. It that is make it that make it feel more toxic than it actually is. Mm, that's a good point. That's my argument. I'm not. I'm not saying that that makes it yeah. not treated with care. I'm just saying that I don't think it's just treated with care because I think Gideon obsessing over it puts it more up there. If, yeah. if you're somebody who is going to be 
at all affected by this, I think Gideon obsessing over it makes that worse. I What do you think, Sam? I'm kind of torn on this one. I think something that helps, that makes it feel like it's handled with more care for me, is the fact that Gideon and Hera are kind of evenly matched. Like, there is... Like, Gideon is kind of beholden to Harrow as Harrow's cavalier. Um, and there's that sense of, like, you do what the necromancer says and everything. But it doesn't feel like one of them is constantly, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't feel like one of them is constantly exerting, like, power and influence and manipulation over the other. It just kind of feels like they're both sniping at each other constantly. Um, and I feel like they could both do damage to each other um, in a way that doesn't excuse the toxicity like doesn't make it not toxic you know you can still hurt someone who has the capacity to hurt you but it's not like you know one of them is trapped in a one-way situation of toxicity with another person and i do think a lot of it is not a lot of it is in Gideon's head because like they're constantly going at each other and telling each other like I hope you choke and die (laughs) (laughs) that's true right but it's not um, it's not all in Gideon's head but Gideon just but Gideon's obsession thinks about it a lot just like focusing in on it because Gideon is kind of fixated on Harrow for a variety of reasons um I think does for me at least it does help a little bit if that makes sense yeah so not a yes. Do we think maybe enough? I think it might be one of those where your mileage may vary, but also this is the kind of book this is. Exactly. So right. I think it's enough with the understanding that this is a book about. Right. A lot. Like it's this a- is a book about a lot of very heavy things, including including a toxic toxic relationship toxic friendship is a little more meta this is a little bit more about like audience response and reaction but in my experience we are here for that i don't think you can avoid getting recommended this book without one of the features of the book whether it's like a selling feature or a warning being like Mm -hmm. and there's this bonkers obsessive toxic gay relationship (laughs) and you gotta read it like you know like okay it's such a it's such a um there's such a foundation of the work I feel like in terms of character work and character dynamics that I feel like you will have fair warning going into this and maybe not everyone has experienced that but like I feel like I heard as much about that as I heard about gay necromancers in space (laughs) yeah and also it's not like it sneaks up on you a little bit in like you'll know in a chapter if this is not if this is not the kind of toxic relationship you're okay reading about. It's very upfront. It's very consistent in a True. way that it even isn't for the other topics. I agree. Like you can right. get pretty far in before dealing with the other two, but this is like immediate. It's like so literally it is page, chapter one and five. I am trying to leave. Yeah. <laughs> page yeah. five. <laughs> so yeah. enough, but also your mileage may vary. So if you start this book and go, wow, that's a lot, maybe read something else <laughs> and maybe it's not for you yeah yeah, I, yeah would, which is fine. I would agree with that all right um suicide for yeah for the suicide uh um it is for most of the time low on explicit descriptions 
And when it's not, it is in the context of a lot of other kinds of death. Um, I, I feel like, cause the, cause when, when you're dealing with this topic, because like, it is very like socially fraught and psychologically fraught when it's the, when it's the only death that's happening that can feel often like that's less care and like it's more stressful to deal with. Here, it is part of a buffet of ways that people can get messed up and or die. I will... It's... But I, wanna... I don't know whether that, which direction that puts it in care. I just noticed it as a different way of treating it. Yeah. Uh, Saint, you go first and then I have a thought. Um, I think I'm, this is the one that I'm the most torn on. So you go ahead and go first and I'm going to continue to like <laughs> marinate over some things. Okay. I think that this book treats suicide as a positive benefit because you deserve it. <laughs> mm. Mm, mm, Not in a way that means is... like you deserve to die, but in a way that means like you deserve to have the right to decide when it's over for anybody you feel like including yourself and i'm I'm wording that very specifically because this book condones like a, a, murder if it helps you to leave if is i guess right um, yeah so it's and it i think it 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 goes as far as to make not suicidal ideation but the concept of the the concept of suicide being something that is it, it it's seen as a as a an incredibly positive thing like as long as your bones people, continue to be around to be useful <laughs> right like this is a group of people whose impulse after a murder is to try and raise the murdered people i mean but dead. but even you know Hera's yeah. parents suicided because they thought they had failed. And instead of even trying to see what the actual reality was, they just said, well, time to go. And like, we're going to take our kid with us too. And um, like there, there's, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about anything later in the book, but like, you know, there's, there's an ending, there's an ending su- thing where suicide is your job. <laughs> arguably mm, your goal your at a certain point um yeah and and i think that that pushes it from i i think that pushes it either into not enough or I just g- or just no because i, I think the way okay. that it's handled in the book pushes it as a a positive in a in a way that if that is going to affect you is going to be a, a problem yeah okay i'm gonna having heard your description of that i'm gonna say no Right, just just no. It is not treating suicide as a topic carefully. Intentionally, mm-hmm. yes, but not carefully. Um yeah. I think if you Okay, yeah. I think it's one of those things where if hmm I think this is true for a lot of triggering topics, but I think the more that you personally are affected by depictions of suicide in general, mm-hmm. then the more impact potentially this book 
may have on you um, because absolutely so I because I think the book I don't want to say I don't think the book handles suicide flippantly like it has big mm-hmm. emotional consequences it's very integral to the plot um, it's not it's again it's not glorified but it is sometimes it's so tied up with the sense of like duty like it is your duty mm-hmm. to do this thing you know it is you've been born to do this thing which could be really triggering for some people who maybe identify with that sense of I'm only as good as what I've, you know, my duty to my community, my family, right. whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that I kind of as, I think where I really come down on this is more tied to what we talked about with it being integral to the plot. Like I just can't imagine this book getting around that in any way or existing without those plot lines of like ritual sacrifice. So it makes it kind of hard for me to make a determination on was this handled with care or not, because the world is so different. Like it's, you know, I presumably tens of thousands of years into the future and we have necromancers and everyone has been reanimated from the dead and, you know, we're on spaceships. And even though (laughs) suicide is a very, it speaks to deeply to the human condition and to human grief and suffering. It's handled in a way in this book that is so like, you would never see suicide in this context because it has to do with like magic and it makes it kind of hard for me to know how delicately it was handled because it's kind of just like, bam, out there plot twist, which feels like it's not very delicate but it's also like this is so integral to this world of death that you've signed on to that you might be expecting it. I don't know. I feel like I'm not making sense. This one is very thorny. No, for no, me. no. That it's makes very sense. thorny for me. Yeah, I'd say like there's a lot of like it is very like carefully constructed. It exists in a specific system for specific reasons and you're right like it has an entire moral system which has a has like this very specific orientation towards suicide as a topic and none of that cares at all about what your orientation towards this topic is exactly it it just doesn't for sure yeah yeah so i think could be no care could be really triggering for some in the most literal sense it yeah, in the most literal sense, it it does not care, and it is, it's not about you at all, in both the positive and negative ways. Um, I will say yeah. I didn't find, and I'm sure other people would have a different um, experience of this, but I do want to be clear when I'm discussing this book and the author's work broadly, that I didn't find the handling of suicide distasteful. That's just one person. Oh, no. I didn't find it, like, distasteful. I didn't find it, um, you know, gratuitous or um, overindulgent or anything like that. It's not a direct criticism of the inclusion. No. But I do think I agree with you that, like, the book just doesn't care. (laughs) Well, that's that's one of the things where, like, if it was overly indulgent or gratuitous i would almost argue that it's maybe more triggering but less dangerous <laughs> um no, like to we read maybe would have called it torture porn in the gratuity rating like yeah would have but, handled other aspects of this discussion differently but like part of part of the reason that i i think this is maybe treated with less care is because 
it 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 does not it doesn't really it doesn't really talk about whether or like when it is when it is talked about it is like the answer to a problem and not a thing to treat cautiously right. yeah absolutely so that's so yeah I, I i agree with you and i think that that's a reason why it's not 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 treated with care that being said if that doesn't bother you this is a very good book <laughs> highly yeah, recommend absolutely. 10 out of 10 absolutely um all right then for the cannibalism oh i'm sorry did uh, we just say no or not enough <laughs> what did we actually said agree i think on? said no like okay. literally cool. does not care isn't trying to make you feel terrible but isn't worried right. about okay um for the cannibalism uh i i think Having attempted to read other books that deal with cannibalism as a topic and not being able to, um, this one seems like it's not. I would argue that the the setup arguments that happen between characters puts that as treated with more care. Yeah, I agree. We have characters we see actively grapple with it on screen, but yeah. not while they are being eaten. Right, right. Yeah, they're they're discussing this topic's place in their moral universe, and they right. don't all have the same perspective. Um, and also, it ends with somebody refusing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's not like everybody not, gets talked. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. Something. There is a person who says, "No, I won't do this." Yeah, um, yeah. I think too. Because but I, I, think I think also knowing... that it's. Go ahead. I, I I was gonna say I think it's also like it's less. It, it's more the concept of it, and we again we don't really have like a super graphic depiction. We don't have you know, it's not pushed on on the reader as this is the answer. Like that's not how that is handled. Yeah, this was one where, like, I knew it was necromancy, and it took until for my second read from be like, oh, yeah, it is also cannibalism. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. Um, yeah. There's a lot of associated secondary topics that may or may not be what you want, but, like, the actual cannibalism, I think, is handled with care. I agree, and I think Cause it if, has... This is not trying to be a cannibal story. No. Or uh, a cannibal book. I think I'm gonna what say... What were you saying, Saint? I would say, I think I'm gonna say it was handled care because of what we were discussing about how the characters grapple with it, and there's a lot of discussions about the morality of, like, different versions of cannibalism, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And whether or not someone is willing to do that and to what end. But we also see, like, the consequences of it. Whether that's, you know suffering or more power or grief or someone in a lot of pain like it isn't just like cool fun cannibal superpowers you know <laughs> like there's <laughs> i feel like we see the actual consequences of doing that and like you know whether you're siphoning someone's soul or like consuming someone's essence or blood um we we actually see what that does to people yes that's a good point so I'm going to say it was handled with care. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, for the moral directionality, um, I feel like this is one of my favorite examples of a book where it's tangled. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> like as like they have actual specific discussions about how they all have different perspectives, like you know, and and even to like even even down to something as simple as all but one of the planets follow one religion with one liturgy and then the ninth one has a different one and like it starts there and then gets more complicated and diverging and people might be swayed slightly but each person has their own individual moral journey and we get a lot of those in some significant detail. Yes. I agree. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, all right. The point of view for the trauma and aftermath. Okay. So here's where it's going to be a little tricky. Uh, for 99.9% of the book, it is Gideon. Then there is some very specific aftermath where it is somebody else. And I feel like, is it a spoiler to discuss who that yes. is? Yes. Um, it's Gideon so. the entire time while Gideon is able to be the narrator. Yep. There's and a couple of things a- that take Gideon out of that possibility. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, all right. For the trope spotter, uh, the ninth planet with the locked tomb. No, those aren't the tropes. That's just in the book. Uh, is a childless dystopia. Gideon and Harrow are the only kids um there they're the only kids of their generation and i don't think we really meet any we meet one other person who's like maybe a couple years younger than them or something he's either a couple years younger or at least 20 years older and and they are both adults they are both 18 i believe yeah so like they're they're not even this is not even a they are still children yeah right they have yeah whether 18 is the age of majority for their planet in terms of the trope yeah it's a childless dystopia no kids around all right what was everyone's favorite non-traumatic thing about the book hopefully you have one (laughs) uh nicole what's yours i am a huge fan of the different cultures necromantic cultures in the uh in the different houses and i really like i'm not going to say what it is but i really like the lore of why they are what they are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i will go ahead and say this because i did like this book enough that i got book two from the library i still have it out i'm about two-thirds of the way through it um it's it makes sense (laughs) Um, and it also explains like why they have such a, why, why they kind of all have a, like, I am the best one. I am the only correct one kind of an attitude. Yeah. I really like Harrow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just in general. Just in general. Like, you know, with some caveats, (laughs) but, um, I can't remember the last time. I mean, I yeah, I can't remember the last time a character like grabbed me right when they walked onto the page. And I loved Harrow's first scene with Gideon. I just found her super compelling. I just love her just like 
bleak determination and obsession and how she's kind of like this force of nature but also kind of delicate in certain ways um and mm-hmm. i like that she's kind of an emotional crucible that we get to wander through and unpack as we get to know her more so mine is definitely like a character i think that i just found her super compelling and i was really interested in reading more because um partially because she was in the book all right now that I'm able to actually keep track of the character names and understand the naming system. Uh, Really, I should have read the character list that is very helpfully in the start of the book. Um, I should have read it on my first read through. I did not. That would have helped. Uh, I really, really like the character naming system. It's really cool. Uh, Yeah, it's really cool. Once you know that that's what's happening, it makes it much easier to at least know what house everyone is from um, because their last names indicate their house. Um, They're either like literally based on the number or in some way close enough to it that it's easy to figure out. Um, And, you know, since I have uh, trouble keeping track of characters' names, uh, this made my second read through go much better. Good. Uh, now that I was keeping track of that. But yeah. So, uh, Saint, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Uh, I have most of my information listed on my website, which is stgibson.com. Um, I didn't mention before, but I also work as a literary agent. So if you're interested in querying me, you can find a manuscript wish list there. And then if you want to follow me on socials, I am on Twitter at S underscore T underscore Gibson. I'm on Instagram at ST Gibson author. Excellent. And uh, don't you, you also have a book. Oh, I do. I should probably mention that. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote a queer reimagining of the story of Dracula's Brides. It's a story of obsession, abuse, and emancipation. Um, It is a love story, even though it kind of winds through some dark places. Um, And that is currently available through all retailers in ebook and Orbit. My new publisher is doing a big, sexy hardcover release in October. (laughs) So if you want a beautiful hardcover, you can pre-order that wherever you like to order your books. And it comes out on October the 4th in time for spooky season. Nice. Excellent. And so if you're listening to this later than October 4th, 2022, you should be able to get that somewhere. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, I actually had originally read it as an advanced copy and I need to do a reread of it. I didn't know that. So, yeah, that's how I uh, found you, actually, is, yeah, that I read the advanced (laughs) copy of A Dowry of Blood. You were there when the Uh, deep magic was written. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well though like i i know enough about arcs to know that um that's after it was written and then a bunch of people looked over it, and then more people looked <laughs> over it and then i got to be one of the people who looks at it and then it got published yeah exactly <laughs> i'm glad you enjoyed it yeah thank you uh so we'll have the links to your stuff in the show notes and thank you so much for joining us thank you it's my pleasure everyone will yeah so all right and uh we'll catch you in a fortnight
All music used in this podcast was created by Nicole as Heartbeat Art Co. and is used with permission. Our transcriptionist is Heather. Follow her on Twitter at MamaDragon20. We're proud members of the Certain Point of View Network. Find all the CPOV shows at www.certainpov.com. You can contact us on Twitter at BooksThatBurn or by email at BooksThatBurn at Yahoo.com. Please consider leaving us a tip at Kofi.com slash BooksThatBurn or becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon.com slash books that burn. All patrons get access to our upcoming book list, bonus content, including the second half of all interviews, and will receive a one-time shout-out. To get updates on our written reviews, recent episodes, and newly completed transcripts, subscribe to our fortnightly newsletter at buttondown.email slash books that burn. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review wherever you're listening. This helps people to find the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.